Today's scripture reading is from Leviticus 11.45 and Hebrews 9.11-14. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit of Christ, through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Orlando Grace. My name is Ben. I'm the student ministry director. It's my joy to get to, to preach the word to you today. We're picking up something that we started last year. Uh, it is a, a series that we are going to try to preach through the whole of the Bible. So for these next six weeks, what we're doing is dedicating our sermon to uh, a singular book of the Bible. So today we are in Leviticus, and last year uh, Jim started us off by covering Genesis and Exodus. And so he gave us this idea of Genesis sort of being a prologue, right? Uh, the, the means to know what's happening. And then in Exodus is when we start seeing the, uh, the, the chapter one of the book, is, is what he said. So in Genesis, we see this God who creates and calls his people to himself. And then in Exodus, we saw a God who delivered them. And then in Leviticus, today we're going to see that God is holy, and so God's people who live with him must also be holy. This is the whole thesis of this book. Holiness is the only thing that survives in the presence of God. The, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, it wasn't a spacesuit that God would put on to protect himself from us, but rather it's a spacesuit that he gives us to protect us from his pure and perfect holiness. Pro, part of our scripture reading today focused on uh, Leviticus chapter 11. And uh, we, we see this command to be holy as I am holy. And uh, that word, holy, it means holy or holiness or consecrate. It appears 143 times in the book of Leviticus. So holiness is everywhere in this book. I think our culture is really bad at talking about holiness. Either we conflate it with morality Right, where we think that as long as we do one more good thing than we do bad things, we'll be okay at the end of our life. Or we treat it as this thing that's purely hypothetical, and, and we say like, oh, that person's holier than thou. Or we ascribe holiness to things that aren't actually holy, right? Like the sacred grounds of your favorite football team, or the way that we love to call celebrities and their, their work icons, my point is that humanity recognizes that there are things that are sacred. 
we recognize that there are things that are holy. The issue is that we have searched in the wrong places and identified the wrong things that are holy or make us holy. And this is a human issue, right? It's not just America or even the global 21st century. This has been the thing since Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. So this is what Leviticus is all about. It's about the holiness of God. And because it's about the holiness of God, it's about the holiness of his people. And before we, before we dive in, I just I want to make sure that we're on the same page. I'm not going to belittle you today and ask you to raise your hand if, if, when the last time somebody did a, a quiet time in Leviticus was, right? It really upsets me when I see people doing that because I think the message that it conveys is that there's portions of Scripture that are less important than other portions of Scripture, that we think that like maybe God gave these words to Moses however many thousands of years ago, so he can't possibly think the same way that he did back then. Or that Leviticus is somehow less scripture than the New Testament, or even Psalm 23 or Jeremiah 29 11. So if you are here today and you're dreading a sermon on Leviticus, I'm with you. All right? I, I, have, I have struggled my way through this book many times. It has been the thing that makes me close my chronological Bible in, in February and, and pick something new. I see you, and I just want you to know that my, my prayer for this sermon, I have two prayers for this, for this sermon today, is that one, maybe after this you get excited about reading the book of Leviticus. Maybe you see what's going on for the first time and, and like tomorrow morning you're pumped, you're, you're closing up the gospel of John and you're going back to Leviticus. And then my second prayer is that we realize that the key to this book is Jesus. And that's, that's the answer here. This is what makes this book make sense. So let's dive into what we are encountering in this book of law. It's the third book of the Pentateuch or the book of Moses, the books of Moses, the five books of Moses. And it takes about three hours to read from start to stop. So it's a, it's a big book and it doesn't follow this narrative storyline like Genesis and Exodus do. All right. So it's a straight up book of law. Uh, and, and so it's, it's a little bit harder to read than Genesis and Exodus, but it's important that we notice something. There's a continuity in this book, right? When you, when you read the Pentateuch, you should see it as a whole book of, uh, of Moses, the five scrolls. The law has to be read and understood within the context of what else we see in the Pentateuch. It has to be read in the context of the historical frame of God calling his people, the exodus, the wandering in the wilderness, and then eventually as we move through the rest of the Pentateuch into the destruction of Canaan. So by way of, by way of outline, this book has a symmetrical design or a chiastic structure. Think of it like a pyramid. You have a base level. And then you have a second level on top, and they're mirroring each other on, on either side of this pyramid. And then you build, build, build until you get to the center of the book where we have this, like, capstone of the pyramid. So this is, this is how Leviticus's outline works. It begins with Moses writing that the voice of the Lord spoke to Moses from the tent of the meeting, the tent of meeting. But he, he isn't allowed to go inside yet. 
What comes next explores the three main ways in which God helps Israel live in his presence. The outer sections describe the rituals that Israel was to practice in God's presence. And then the most outside but inside of that intersections uh, focus on the priest's roles as mediators between God and man. And then within that, we, we see this section that focuses on Israel's purity. And then the capstone of this book is, is chapters 16 and 17, and it's the instructions for the Day of the Atonement. But then outside of that, we see the last two chapters of the book. They serve as like a a guidepost, a sign, as they go into the next book of Moses. It's in chapters 26 and 27. We see Moses calling the people to, reminding them of, to be faithful to this covenant. He shows them the covenant blessing of peace and abundance. But he contrasts that with the warning of what comes with breaking the covenant which is disaster and exile from the land. But watch this, and I I don't want to steal Jim's thunder from next week, but it's crucial to understanding what happens in Leviticus that I point this out. So in, in the first verse of Leviticus, you've got Moses outside of the tent of meeting and the Lord speaking to Moses from within. And then in Numbers, at the very beginning of Numbers, we see Moses inside of the tent of meeting, meeting with the Lord. It says the Lord spoke to Moses within the tent. And so what we see is that for the Israelites, these things worked. When they were following the covenant, when they were keeping the covenant, it worked for them. They met with God within the tent. So let's dive into the meat of this book. We're going to look at the base level first of what's happening in Leviticus, right? So uh, we see that we are unholy, so we need sacrifices to atone for us. In chapters 1 through 7 and then 23 through 25, we see this, that we are unholy and we need a sacrifice to atone. These first chapters cover the sacrifices that are made when the Israelites are unholy. And then the last chapters, we see these things, these feasts that Israel is supposed to take part in to fellowship with God. So there was five major sacrifices that Israel was commanded to do. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, and then the sin offering and the guilt offering. Each of these had unique purposes and emphases put on them. When I look at these specific sacrifices in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, I see three sacrifices that are, are there to praise God uh, and fellowship with him, and then two that are offered because a sin has been committed. So the burnt offering, it was highly costly. It was a reflection of the Israelites' thankfulness to God. Or it accompanied a prayer of petition, them asking God for something. And then the grain offering, it was offered up as a pleasing aroma in unison with that that burnt offering. And, And the peace offering is the last offering which doesn't pay for a sin, but it was like a meal between the offerer, the priest, And the Lord. Then we encounter the sin and the guilt offering. The sin offering, it's done when Israel needed to make amends for one's broken relationship with the Lord. Something that stuck out to me is we see two two different kinds of sins uh, given, the parameters for how to or when to give this sin offering. And, And for 1 through 35, we see that this offering is to be made for sins of commission. 
or things that we did that we weren't supposed to do. And then in 5, 1 through 13, there's the offering is required for the sin of omission or something that we didn't do that was required of us. The difference between uh, this and, and the guilt offering, which is the last sacrifice that we have, is that the sin offering seems to be uh, offered when a sin was committed against God, and then the, the, the guilt offering is for when a sin was committed against another's neighbor. The intention is clear, that sin has happened, and humanity needs to be made right, or at this point, bring them bring them back into fellowship with God. Maybe not to a zero guilt status, but at bare minimum, back into relationship with God. This is kind of a hard thing to think about for us though, right? How many of you are in a relationship uh, where you go out to dinner with your credit card company or whoever you pay your car loan to? We don't do relationships with people who we're indebted to. It's foreign to us. But if you have a family member who lent you some money, what would it do to your relationship if you were to stop paying that back every month? It wouldn't be good. It would fracture that relationship. What then would happen if that family member comes to town and and you want to take them out to dinner at a nice restaurant and you pay the bill? That wouldn't go well. It would be an awkward, awkward rest of the evening. So, so this is what starts to happen in Israel. Is, and we see this in Amos 5. They move on to these feasts without having a sacrifice made before them. And in Amos, Amos 5, we see the Lord say to the Israelites, I hate, I despise your feasts. So this bridges the gap between these two sections of Leviticus. It's not just concerned with bringing the balance of our sin back to zero, but it's concerned with bringing us back into fellowship with God. When we get to chapters 23 through 25, we see the other side of the the rituals, these feasts. They were to show the relationship between God and man. They were holy times. They followed the rules of the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to work. They, They began with offerings. And all these things show that God is holy. And we are supposed to commune with him and be in relationship with him. But we can't do that in a state of unholiness. We shouldn't look at these requirements, though, and think, wow, what kind of God would would be so hard to please? He wouldn't want his people to dwell with him. But here's the issue, is that the magnitude of the difficulty we have in following the laws of God is not related to how hard God is to please. It's related to how far we've fallen from what God designed humanity to be. The gap is so wide, not because God pushed us away and didn't want anything to do with us. It's because we drove the gap, the wedge in between us so wide. It's not that God is fickle or picky or demanding. It's that we have fallen into a state of unrighteousness where we see righteousness and holiness as something that's burdensome. What we should see is that the Lord is the holiest of any God and he genuinely wants to be in relationship with and feast with his people. 
And because he wants to know his people and be in relationship with him, he gives us an access to him. This is what we see in the next section of this book. In chapters 8 through 10 and 21 through 22, we encounter the sections about priests. We, the next inner level of this pyramid teaches us that we are unholy, and so we need a priest to mediate for us. God ordains these priests to enter into his presence and mediate between him and his people as advocates for his people. In chapters 8 through 10, we see Aaron and his sons be ordained to be the first priests of Israel and, and go before God on behalf of Israel. And then in chapters 21 and 22, we see these qualifications to be the priests. And then in chapter 10, we encounter this weird, uh, we, we encounter this weird story. And I mean weird as in out of place. Because what we're experiencing is a book of law right? And then we get this one chapter of narrative. It's like you're reading the Constitution, and halfway through the Bill of Rights, you encounter the, the story of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, and then immediately you go back into the Bill of Rights. So what we see in chapter 10 is what happens when these standards aren't followed or respected. We see Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, go into the presence of God while they were unclean, in a state of unholiness, and they were immediately consumed by God in his holiness. The guys at the Bible Project, who are, I really highly recommend their stuff, they offered some great help to this sermon, but they say that it's a haunting reminder of the paradox of living in God's holy presence, because it's pure goodness but it becomes dangerous to those who rebel and insult God's holiness. But even though that there are these super intense laws for the priests, the people aren't off of, like they're not off the hook when it comes to their own personal purity either. A covenant is two-sided. Marriages don't work well when only one person wants to be faithful. People don't pay their rent if their landlord doesn't keep their property to a livable standard. Covenants are two-way streets. So God gives his people uh, stipulations for how they remain holy and stay in his presence. And the, the way that the text flows out of this, out of this section on priest is that they, it, it seems like we're ratcheting down what the law was. We're making it tighter like the Israelites had to experience when they sinned with the golden calf in Exodus. Uh, the, the law seems to be tightened because Nadab and Abihu have fundamentally misunderstood their righteousness. They have misunderstood holiness before God's presence. So this next innermost section of the pyramid that we see deals with these purity laws. It shows that we are even more unholy than we had possibly thought. In chapters 11, and, uh, 11 through 15 and then 18 through 20, we encounter this section on purity laws. Uh, chapter 11 through 15 engages with the ritual laws, and then 18 through 20 show us these moral laws. And these laws might seem confusing, but again, I, I recommend the guys at the Bible Project on YouTube. They're really helpful as, as they break down this book. They say, here's what we make of these, these purity laws. Because God is holy, the Israelites need to be in a state of holiness or be clean. 
themselves whenever they enter into his presence. God's presence was off limits to anyone who was in a state of uncleanliness or impurity. So for them to be within God's presence, if they were in a state of uncleanliness, they would need to leave the camp and then go through a cleansing process, whatever went with the the sin or the thing that they had been deemed unclean by, and then they could enter back into the camp. So under these ritual laws, we see five ways which an Israelite could have been made unclean and and would have needed to, to leave the camp. You could come into contact with bodily emissions. You could have a skin disease. You could touch mold. You could touch a dead body. Or you could eat foods that weren't kosher. All of these things were associated with death or loss of life. And so at the center of this, at the center of God giving these laws, we see God's heart and plan and desire for how we are to live. And that's to live. It's to not be associated with death. That is God's heart desire for us. Not just be alive, but to live how God truly designed for us, which is with God in his presence. And if touching death is the thing that makes us unclean and separates us from being with God, then being with God is our true life. Death isn't just the opposite of something that keeps us near God. Death is direct opposition to God. Want to be near life? Want to live a true life? Avoid death is what the Lord is saying with these laws. But this list seems exhaustive, right? Touching mold, bodily emissions, skin disease, uh, eating foods that aren't kosher. Not everything on here is inherently sinful. In fact, they were inevitable at some points for these Israelites. The key is to recognize that the process of leaving the camp was temporary. They would be cleaned, and then they, they could enter back in. And it was to remind the Israelites regularly of the holiness of God and how that holiness should invade and affect every aspect of our lives. So then on the other side of this, in chapters 18 through 20, we see the moral laws for the purity of Israel. These laws were to serve in contrast with how the Canaanites were living. In this section, the Israelites are called to a higher level of sexual integrity and of holiness and a high level of of neighbor love and care. They were to care about the poor. They were to be concerned about justice issues. And this shows that the, law of, that, that the law that God is giving to his people, they were good for his people, but then the law also blessed anybody who came in contact with the Israelite people. So what are we to do? We are more unholy than we think we are. We need priests to, to sacrifice for us, and we need to make sacrifices. But even, even the priests who are supposed to make these sacrifices for us, they can't even seem to get it right. So what do we do? And this brings us to the capstone of the book of Leviticus, the capstone of our pyramid. And that's the section on the Day of the Atonement. It shows that we are unwilling to stay holy. And so we need a Savior. What we see at the center of this book is this section on the Day of the Atonement. 
In, in 16 and 17, we see the instructions for what the day of the atonement is supposed to be and how it's to be done. So in 30 and 31 of chapter 16, we read, Atonement will be made for you this day to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It's a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you must practice self-denial. It's a permanent statute. This day of atonement was supposed to be for the Israelites to be made clean before God. Here's how it worked. The high priest would take two goats, one of which would become an offering to atone. So he would sacrifice it and it would purify the sins of the people. And then the other goat was the scapegoat. The high priest would sacrifice the purification offering and then begin the scapegoat process. The high priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat and confess the sins of the people of God to this scapegoat. And then send the scapegoat out into the wilderness, away from the camp, never to come back in. And it was symbolic that sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. But according to Hebrews 10, we see a couple of issues arise. It needs to be done every year. We see that one flaw is that it doesn't permanently take away the sin of the Israelites. So the first issue is that it happens year after year. And then second, there's no transformation in the lives of the people of God. They keep on sinning and sinning and needing this sacrifice year after year. They need the blood of bulls and goats to make them right. And I want to address two things because I don't, I don't, I want to make sure that we understand that the old covenant, it wasn't bad, but it couldn't work because the people couldn't work. There was a ceiling to the sins that this goat could pay the sacrifice for. And it would run out year after year. And then they would start filling that bank up year after year. The sacrifice would be made and the people would go right back to sinning. The old covenant didn't work because the people couldn't sustain it. The problem is that the fullness of Israel's sin could never be transferred to the goat. And the goat had nothing to offer back to Israel. The new covenant works because Jesus does receive the fullness of our sin. And it leads people to the ability to sustain that. In Christ, we see a perfect sacrifice. It doesn't need to be made year after year. The blood offering is perfect but Christ is also our perfect scapegoat. The scapegoat was cast out after the sin was applied to him, never comes back to the camp. Our father, Adam, from whom our sin comes from, cast out of the garden, never gets to go back. Christ was cast out of the land of the living into death. But he could not be permanently cast out. Because he was the perfect scapegoat, Christ is the only one who gets to come back into the land of the living. His resurrection accomplishes that. Scapegoats didn't come back to the camp because they couldn't adequately satisfy the penalty of the Israelites who were cast out because of their unholiness. Christ comes back because he does perfectly satisfy that penalty. 
because the penalty that demanded eternal death was satisfied by the death of eternal value, there was nothing left that could keep him in the grave any longer. And not only does he enter back into the blessed land of the living, he brings everybody whose sins were applied to him back with him. Back to the garden of life. And it happens so perfectly because Christ comes to earth and he doesn't come as a bull or a goat, but he comes the way that we do, the way that we identify as humans. Christ is the true and the best human. He lived exactly how God intended for humanity to live. Our forefather, Adam, he corrupted all of us when he and Eve sinned. But now Jesus comes and he heals all of those fractures. He makes us whole. He brings us back to him. Let me explain how this happens the best that I can. There's this idea of federal headship. It's, it means the head of all heads. Adam is humanity's natural head. From all humans came Adam, right? And so because of Adam's federal headship, his sin becomes our sin as well. But this isn't a novel idea. If you're sitting here freaked out about the idea of headship and original sin, we, we see headship played out in, in a lot of different ways. One of which is major corporations and brands apologizing for the sins or wrongdoings of the lowest level employee. There's an example of headship. But the, we identify with Adam whether we like it or not. He is humanity's natural federal head. But we see the mechanism of atonement is identification. Look at Hebrews 10.4. It says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These bulls and goats, they, they have no ability to identify with humans. And so they can't take away the sin that infects us from Adam and our sin. So what does Christ do? He becomes a man. He dwells on earth and he identifies with us so that he makes the atonement that is needed. In our union with Christ, our head is changed. Adam ceases to be our federal head and Christ becomes that head for us. We identify with Christ and Adam no longer. The transformation happens through the transferring of our sins to Christ and the transferring of Christ's perfect righteousness to us. So our lives are transformed into the truest life that we could ever live because now we have Christ's righteousness. Jesus tells us that he comes to give life and life abundant. When our headship changes, our whole identity changes. I go from identifying with Adam in his sin to identifying with Christ in his righteousness. I go from cast out of the garden, cast out of the land of living when I die, to admitted back into the garden, hand in hand with Christ. This federal headship of our lives is the most important thing about our lives. Is your head Adam or is your head Christ? In, in our society, there's three things 
that we just can't shake when it comes to our headship. The country we live in and the relationship we have with them, we pay taxes, we have to follow their laws, we carry their passport when we go to a different country. They are our federal head. That's why it's the federal government. The household relationship of the husband being the head of the, the, the household, the head of his bride, and then the parental relationship that a child has, right? The, uh, the head of the family. When a child is born, they come with the last name of their parents because the parents are their head. Here's something incredible, amazing, that Christ does when our federal head of Adam is replaced by the federal head of Christ. The head of our government changes. We no longer worry about our earthly citizenship. We become citizens of the kingdom of God first and foremost. Secondly, we become the bride of the Christ, of Christ. He is the perfect husband for the church, the head of the church. And lastly, the familial relationship is changed. With Christ as our head, God becomes our father, adopted into his family as brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Goats and bulls, they don't do this for us. Goats and bulls don't identify with us. But Christ identifies with us. He gives us a new birth, a new heart, and he completely transforms our life. So here's the deal. Every human has a scapegoat that we want to lay our hands on and confess our sins to and send it out so that it never comes back. But Christians have a scapegoat that takes away our guilt and our shame and it removes our sin. And when that scapegoat comes back, we're not embarrassed by the sin, but instead we recognize that that scapegoat is the thing that brings us into true life. And each of the, the categories of Leviticus, the pyramids of like the, the levels of pyramid that we talked about, we see Christ be the fulfillment of the law. On the base level, he is the sacrifice. He identifies with us. And so it really works this time. His perfection creates a space that can handle all of our sin. Christ as the priest means that he mediates between us and God. He is our intercessor. He intercedes for us. He advocates for us. He is the truer and more perfect priest. He had to do no purifying before he went to make a sacrifice because he already was perfectly pure. And then Christ fulfills the purity laws because he lived that perfectly pure life. He was so holy, so pure. Our lives are transformed at his touch. When he goes around on earth, He's not being infected by the things that he touches that would make him unclean. Instead, he touches and makes unclean things clean. He has a holiness so pure that it was infectious to the things he touched. So look to Christ for the transformation of your life. Trust in him only to have the ability to take these impossible commands that we see in Leviticus and look to Christ to read them as a hope-filled promise of perfect righteousness and cleanliness from Jesus. 
we're going to move into our silent time of reflection now. And there's a few ways that that can look like. If you're new here, we would love to connect with you. Fill out a a connect card, uh, scan the QR code in your bulletin. That can look like a few things. It's a weekly email from us. Maybe it's joining a community group. Maybe it's signing up for our Discover OGC class. Secondly, if you have been blessed by the ministry of Orlando Grace Church, we love to partner with you in, in giving so that we can continue to, to bless our city. But, but lastly, as we reflect, consider these things. Who is your head? Is Adam your head? Do you identify with your sin in Adam? Or is Christ your head? And are you looking to him to be the perfect righteousness that he offers his people? Pray with me. Father, we praise you for this day that you have given us and the opportunity to come to your house as a a body of believers, a gathered church, so we can praise you and worship you and, and glorify you for your holiness, Lord. And we thank you that we can glorify you for your holiness because Christ has given it to us. And so we thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus makes so that we don't need a priest to come to you. The temple, the temple veil is torn and we can enter into your presence, boldly confessing our sins because we know that you are faithful and just to forgive us. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.